if you ask a hundred RIAs or advisors, what's your differentiation? What do you do differently than everyone? And everyone, the starter is trucks. I don't think we have that differentiation. I don't like. I don't know in the industry if there's one firm that can really say that. I think what what you have to do is you have to provide that service, and our business is built on referrals. everybody. Welcome back to The Connected Advisor. I'm your host, Kyle Van Pelt, CEO of MileMarker. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Lyle Wolberg. Lyle is the CEO of Telemus, and he has quite the awesome background. He's a graduate of the University of Michigan, so I'm sure he's probably celebrating the national championship that their team just won recently. Uh, but he's also been named one of Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisors. He's a Barron's Top 1200 Advisor. He's very passionate about planning uh, and helping give back. He's involved with uh, the First Tee of Greater Detroit, and he's also a trustee for the Children's Foundation of Michigan. He's got a lot of really cool things going on, three kids, a wife, and he loves to play golf like me. Um, so Lyle, I am so excited to have a conversation today about all of those things. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Absolutely. So the way I love to kick all of these off is I've just found that everybody has a unique route into this industry one way or the other. Um, and I heard it posed to me one time, you know, as a question and I stole it, which was, what is your money moment? And so the context there is what's that money moment that happened in your life that made you decide that this is what you wanted to spend your time doing as a career, helping people with their money um, and helping people with planning? Yeah, I, it goes back to probably when it was about 10 or 11, and I was being driven to Sunday school every week, and there was an IBM building on the way. It was the shiniest, brightest building as we were driving, and, and I always said to my dad, like, what is that? And he said, well, it's a computer company, and it turns out he, I think it was my grandmother, bought me a few shares of IBM stock, and then every time I drove by the building, I'm like, I own a piece of that building, and it kind of got me... Uh, into you know understanding as a, at a young age what the stock market was. I was infatuated with a lot with the trading, but you know really understanding stocks and, and kind of got bit by it from a really young age and got out of college and and went into commercial banking and I just I couldn't uh, get rid of that kind of itch to you know be in the stock stock market, be around it. Obviously, in today's day and age, and and having learned a lot about the wealth management business. It's not all about stocks and it's really transformed. You know, it, it's always in the background. It's fun to have CNBC on, on TV. You always have something to talk about, but ultimately understanding the business and getting to know the business, it really was a great fit for me because I think our day changes every single minute, every single second. And you always have to be on your feet and adapting to whatever's going on in the financial markets. Yeah, truer words have never been spoken. You know, especially if you are trading stocks or things like that, right? I mean, you know, so, some news that happens at two o'clock in the afternoon could have a tremendous impact on the performance of that stock that day or something along those lines. So uh, there's there's always something happening and changing in this world, isn't there? It, and that's what makes it exciting. I think I think you never know what what your client's going to come up with uh, from day to day. You know, they they have their lives changing, and and at the same time. You know, our backdrop or what we do, you know, our inventory, so to speak, is is such a fluid market. So it makes it exciting, different. I think in the commercial banking world, when I was working there, it just it wasn't much to do, you know, other than, you know, look at credit and 
trying to figure out if a business is going to pay you back. And, and I just enjoy, you know, the markets and, and seeing, you know, how you can take the emotion out of decision-making because too many of us, including myself, when I got in the business, I was, you know, a wreck when the market was down or my stocks were down. And, and I quickly realized it's really not about timing the market. It's about, you know, how much time you put into the market. Yeah. Uh, I love it. Classic. Well, so as somebody with a background in commercial lending, I'm actually curious, I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit trail here with you, but I feel like the conversation of lending, like wealth management firms and advisors being able to help initiate lending on behalf of clients is uh, becoming a trendy conversation in the space right now. What are your thoughts on that? I'll leave it open-ended a little bit, but do you think wealth managers should be kind of in the stream of helping clients get lending or, you know, should they just kind of keep continuing to go to the banks or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? The concept is that I think we all want to aspire to be is being that trusted advisor. I mean, that's a, a cliche name that I think, you know, every firm has kind of adopted over the years. And so, you know, what I've always tried to be is that first phone call for the client, whatever they're doing in their financial life, you know, I want to know how I can help. Too many times, I think in the past, the liability side of the balance sheet has been ignored by the financial advisor because let's be honest, it really hasn't created a lot of revenue for the advisor. I've always done it as that extra touch or advice that I can give. I mean, that has been something we've done for years, whether it was when we were at one of the big wirehouses and then when we moved and, and became an RIA, it was really, how can we help the clients make smart decisions with their money? And that's one of our taglines, you know, why we created the firm. And, you know, on the lending side, there's obviously some great opportunities to use their securities as, as the collateral at a much cheaper rate you can get out of a out of a commercial loan. So I think that's, you know, something that we as advisors, whether you choose to get paid for that as a referral fee to a bank or a lending platform, we choose not to. But it goes down the line of what we do beyond just investment or wealth management or financial planning decisions. So a few years ago, we, we opted into choosing to, to bring in our own insurance experts. So we do insurance internally. Uh, we also do, on top of that, family office services. And there was a, a conference we went to, uh, my partners and I, and I think it's still the best illustration of what we tried to create. And it was a guy who got up on the stage and threw out a rope. And he pulled up a volunteer and said, hang on to this rope. And he quickly pulled the rope out of the guy's hand and he said, this is investment performance and this represents your connection to your client. Then he gave him 20 ropes and he had him hold on to the other 20 ends of the rope and he pulled one away. He said, this is still performance, but the other ropes are lending, financial planning, insurance reviews, family office. And he said, those are your connections to your clients. And obviously we're not you know, always perfect on the investment performance. But if you have these other ties to the client, they're going to be a lot uh, less likely to, to leave you or question the relationship you have with them. That is a great analogy. I've never heard that either, but that does. That makes a lot of sense. And it it kind of feeds into this conversation. I know Michael Kitsis has been talking about this for a while. You know, there was the big boogeyman of fee compression for a long time, but we actually haven't seen that come to fruition. However, I think Kitsis always likes to say it's not necessarily fee compression, but it's service expansion for the same fee. So maybe it's a little bit of an artificial fee compression. 
Um, but in today's day and age where everybody is a fiduciary, you know, everybody's got CFPs, everybody's got that stuff. Do you think that's one of the biggest ways to stand out is just to have more ropes that you can, you know, hand to your client and, and have more services to offer them? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely the way to go. I mean, obviously, there are some clients that are going to be fee sensitive that we're not going to be able to do anything about. But I think if you offer them the services or they feel like that you're just not their investment person, we've done a tremendous job of, of keeping our fee structure the same since we started the firm. We've maybe gone up a little bit uh, over time on, on different tiers of, of clients. But ultimately, we don't really get engaged in the fee discussion because the clients know we're doing so much more for them. And that's the key to the industry. I think that the, the firms that are trying to compete on price probably are covering up for something that they're not offering. Well put. So I'm going to take a detour off of uh, industry stuff for a second. We'll probably come back in a little bit. But uh, you're a graduate of the University of Michigan. Um, yeah, <laughs> Go Wolverines, right? So I'm a little disappointed. I'm a Georgia Bulldogs fan. Uh, so, you know, we were open for a three-peat this year. You guys got your, got your championship. Curious to hear just a little bit about, you know, they, they have a, a prominent business school, all of that type of stuff. Um, talk to us about your experience at Michigan and how you think that helped you kind of get to where you're at today. It wasn't the Ross school when I went there. Uh, it was just the business school. And, and uh, luckily I got in. I don't think I would get in today. My son went there. He, he was much more accomplished than I was uh, okay. uh, at, at academics. But, you know, I, I think what that brought to the table, and it doesn't matter, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty big believer that the, that the university name doesn't mean as much. It's the experience you have there and the connections that you make there. Yeah, good point. And so you know, the alumni network for Michigan, I don't know if it's the same as Georgia, is, is very strong. I think there's opportunities to pick up the phone, look in LinkedIn, and get a, an instant connection to the alumni network at the university. I, I wouldn't say from a book perspective, you know, I can go back and say this is meaningful to what I do today. But I do think, you know, having uh, the experience that I had, the business school aspect, I did not go back and get an MBA uh, because I got the BBA. And, and in our industry, I don't, I don't think that that's a key to the next level. I think the CFP is a really good thing to have, uh, CFA, if you're on the investment side. But, you know, having the University of Michigan, having a diverse background, knowing how to listen to people, that was probably, you know, one of the best learning uh, experiences I had at, at Michigan was the diversity, working in teams. Uh, I would tell you that probably the most impactful course I took was a Dale Carnegie course, uh, getting into this business and just not being 100% sure myself or how to connect with people. And that's probably the better education. Don't let the University of Michigan Development Office hear me say that, but I think that's something that the universities are not doing. And one of the things that we've actually looked at and we've hired from are some universities that have actual sales minors in their programming. And, and I think it's just something that people are just afraid to do, but ultimately it makes a better advisor. Okay. That, that's super interesting. You talked about hiring people who have, you know, sales minors, things like that. I want to talk a little bit about this. I want to talk about the, the people side of the business. Cause I think there's a, a war for talent. I think that everybody's trying to figure out how to hire as they grow. I want to talk about technology here in a second as well. But, you know, a, a conversation I think I'm having frequently right now across the industry is about developing career paths for people coming into the business. So you're hiring people who might have had um, a certain type of degree. 
I think in years past, the the way you grew in this industry is you built a book, right? And I think that's that's changing now. People are getting different types of career path opportunities. Would love to hear you riff on that a little bit. How does somebody coming out of the University of Michigan now, right, or or some other place, they come and work at Telemus? What are you all doing to help them build a career in this space, um, not just build a book? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because I was just on a call half hour ago with a uh, one of my best friend's sons who's coming out. Uh, of university and uh, had this conversation with him. I, th- I think what I received having started at Prudential Securities and then went and going to Merrill Lynch was really the expertise of the, of the education. And the RIA does not have the time nor the money to invest as much as we need to in our younger advisors. So I, I would say that the key for someone looking to get into business, I, you know, I'd look at some of these you know bigger firms that have more programming as a stepping stone. Now we do bring in, you know, younger advisors. We like them to have a, a little bit more experience just in any industry, but obviously having that sales piece. I think I think there's there's enough what we call minders in the business. It's really the finders are going to be the unicorns that are going to be really hard to find. And they are hard to find and you have to keep them and retain them. We've actually talked internally and now with our firm getting bigger, we'd like to start like a two-year training program for a young out-of-college person who could maybe go to Chicago, spend two years there, work in all aspects of the business, and then return back to their home base where they want to build, start building their business. So I want to pull on the thread of the, the, the finders comment that you made. Somebody also I had on the podcast not long ago kind of made a similar comments. There's Penny Phillips. And she said, you know, this industry is kind of losing the concept of the rainmaker, right? You know, everybody's got so into planning and into, which is great, right? We should take care of the clients. We should be able to plan. But why do you think that is? Why do you think it's so hard to find people who will go out and and get the clients and and bring them in the door so that all these great planners and people who can serve them and take care of them, you know, can be put to work? I I don't know if it's a generational thing. I don't know if it's a technology thing. When I got in the business, I picked up the phone and made you know 150 calls a day, and you ultimately had a dialogue. You had to talk. You had to f- talk about what you had to offer, whether it was a muni bond paying six and a half percent, or whether it's you know some sort of stock that you were you know interested in. I think the technology is taking away from now. It can also add. Obviously, LinkedIn is a great one, but we all get bombarded with these solicitations, and you don't know if it's real or if it's not. I think that the lack of confidence in, in, in communication, I think it's also on the, on the prospect side is it's so much easier just to not pick up the phone and just get an email. And you just got to come up with much more creative ways to connect with, with those prospects. And that's something that we've tried to do for a long time of trying to figure out a creative way to help our younger advisors either establish a network or go out and start just making the rounds. Well, and I think too, you know, kind of last question on this is I even hear you say that, you know, this business is such a trust business, right? In a relationship business. So if you're getting, I mean, I can tell you my LinkedIn inbox is full of all kinds of wealth managers, you know, asking for for me to meet with them or things along those lines or whatever. How does somebody who's out there trying to find really convey that your firm can be trusted, right? That, it, that, that you're a firm that's worth coming in and meeting with and having that conversation? Because that's really what you're selling in a lot of a lot of aspects, right? Is, hey, you can trust Telemus. You can trust the team that we have here. What's the best way to convey that? Yeah, it's a, it's a story that, that I, I tell to a lot of people and, and I've grappled with this. If you ask 
a hundred RIAs or advisors, what's your differentiation? What do you do differently than everyone? And everyone, the starter is trust. I don't think we have that differentiation. I don't like. I don't know in the industry if there's one firm that can really say that. I think what what you have to do is you have to provide that service. And our business is built on referrals, especially in the high net worth space that we live in. They rely on their attorney. They rely on their CPA. They rely on their friends and they rely on their family. And so I think that's what uh, we have conveyed. Um, the, the other part, you know, is community involvement. You mentioned it in the intro, you know, we encourage our young advisors. You got to get on boards, nonprofit boards. That's where wealthier people spend their time, you know, get to know them, have them see what you are, who you are. But we've really focused our marketing efforts around how do we convey to our current clients, our centers of influence, that we are open for business and we want more business. And that's how we've grown the business. That's well put. I mean, because a lot of times you just hear people say, oh, you know, there's there's all kinds of reasons why to trust us or, you know, these sort of things. I appreciate you kind of get into brass tacks there and saying, look, I, how, how is anybody supposed to, to, to claim that they're more trustworthy than another firm? But yet at the same token, that is what everybody's selling, right? Um, I'm not just trusting you with my money. I'm trusting you with my hopes, my dreams, my fears, right? You're going to share a lot of things with a financial advisor that you don't share with a lot of other people. Um, and that's a big hurdle to get over. It's why I thank every new client. Thank you for trusting me. I'm going to earn it. You know, I'm yeah. going to do everything I can to earn it. I mean, it's just the, the problem is I don't think you can, you can sell trust as a firm. That's great. I mean, if you don't have it, you're not going to be in this business for long. This podcast is brought to you by Turncast. We make game-changing content for fintech and financial services companies. Learn more at turncast.com. Let's pivot to some tactical operation fun stuff. Uh, so you guys made a nice acquisition last year of Keterit. Would love to hear as much as you can share, you know, kind of the, the ins and outs of that deal, right? There's probably a lot of people listening to this who are thinking about maybe their first acquisition, something along those lines. You know, what do you wish you knew going into it? You seem relatively unscarred, unscathed coming out of it. So kind of uh, recap that experience for us. Well, I mean, I would take a step back. I mean, we did uh, a deal, I think it was 2010, with a group of uh, brokers in Houston. And what we learned from that, it lasted two or three years. And what we learned from that is that Whoever you're talking to in an acquisition or a merger situation, you want to believe that they're coming to you because they think that's the best place they're going to be able to take care of their clients. And that's not because they just really want to get away from wherever they're at. So, you know, that's the key is, is there a cultural fit? We believe in transparency. We did a, a deal, a pretty large deal in Chicago in 2017, and it was difficult but we kept open lines of communication and you know we were successful in that. Keter, it's a really interesting story. It's an advisor, a uh, smaller team, and he basically wants to retire in two years. So Keteret came to us and looked at a lot of different firms. And what he established and what he found out is that the way we managed clients, the way we took care of our clients, the services that we offered were in line with what he wanted to provide to his clients. So we had many meetings with him. His name is Krill. And we, we introduced him to the other advisors, the younger advisors who would more than likely be introduced to his clients. And he positioned that with his clients, that this is the transition plan for them. 
yeah, that was it. That was an exciting. Again, we were put up against the, he had a banker. We were put up against probably five to 10 firms and uh, we had a, a footprint in Chicago and it, and it worked out really well. One of the things that you hear when acquiring firms, even in a situation like that, like big win for you guys, that's awesome. But trying to integrate the systems, the you know, all of that stuff, right? It's always a challenge. So walk us through a little bit about what that process looked like. Or are you still going through it? Or, you know, what's that what's that look like now? I think that one was an easier one because he was coming out of a of a situation where he his technology stack was not something that he chose. Okay. And he had already come from, I think it was Merrill Lynch, was there for a short period of time, realized it wasn't the right fit for him. So that was an adoption immediately of what we're doing. We're on Orion. We have Salesforce. The interesting news is is relatively new, and that is what happened last week when we decided to merge with Covitz out of Chicago. And that's a big, and we'll be around $11 billion in, in assets. And that's a little bit more complicated, right? We have legacy you know, technology. But again, it's a communication, understanding, going in. Um, I think surprises in an acquisition are the worst thing. I've done it and it's not good. So if you communicate, you let the clients know, you let the advisors know, you let the principals know, this is the time frame. This is this is how long we're, we're thinking we're going to do, we're going to merge your CRM or we're going to stop your performance reporting, bring it over and integrate it into ours. Like keeping it going forever is not a solution either. I mean, you want to create one experience for your clients. And the worst thing that we we think that has happened in the past when we haven't done this is, you know, you have two clients, one's working with someone who's a legacy client, another in the new firm, and they're talking about a different experience of being a client of Telemus. So we, we really want to eliminate that. And that goes right through to the investments as well. You want to make sure we're all on the same page. We're working off the same playbook and that one client's not getting something that the other's not. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting challenge in and of itself, right? So let's talk a little bit about technology. You mentioned Orion, you mentioned Salesforce. We talked about hiring people and growing that way. I think an interesting challenge that happens in this in this business is, you know, trying to decouple headcount growth from revenue growth, right? A lot of times it's like as revenue growth goes up, headcount growth is going right along with it. People have tried to invest in technology to maybe, you know, separate that a little bit, but it hasn't always been successful. Curious to hear your thoughts on technology investment as an RIA leader. I've always believed that that there's no such thing as a legacy software or technology. You know, we're always open to new ideas and, and what's out there. And the industry has changed so much. I remember when I started, when we started in 2005, my partner said to me, say, you, you're in charge of this performance reporting. And I went on the internet. I didn't know what I was doing. And I ended up finding Reed Colley at Black Diamond. We were the first firm. I mean, I think he had 50 million on the platform and, we brought over like 600 million and we became really good friends and I was on the advisory board and he grew that. And I did it with uh, what Greg Friedman at Juncture and they evolve. These technologies evolve. And I think what we do is we try to use technology. We probably don't utilize the technology we have enough. That's just you know a training issue. But from a headcount standpoint, I think what we do and we've done successfully is we've invested in the culture of the firm. So you can actually expect more out of your employees to actually increase their workload without having to add a headcount. We've given them flexibility to find the right seat in the firm, even though it's not the existing seat. We had someone who was a, a sales assistant who has now become a portfolio you know, manager. He just 
has evolved and you just keep giving them opportunities to grow. But ultimately, we spend a lot of time on culture, on creating an environment where we, we would you know, like to keep and retain our employees. We expect a lot out of them and they you know, continue to work harder, but um, we give them you know, a lot of opportunity to grow within the organization. So I, I, I got to go on to this because um, my, my business partner who I started, he was early at Orion, uh, worked at Orion for a long time. A lot of our clients at Mile Marker Orion Firms I was at Black Diamond for a, a little while uh, myself, so we kind of have both sides. So I, I noticed you you were early at Black Diamond, you were there, but you mentioned uh, just earlier you guys were on Orion now, so you did make the change at some point. What kind of caused that change, and and uh, how did the conversion go? You know, in, in our evolution, we've, we, we had a, a partner that was more on the institutional asset management side, so we went back to Advent because of the AMR compliant uh, yeah, yeah. reporting, and you know, I think that might have been a mistake on our part. Ultimately, um, we went back to Orion. We could have gone to Black Diamond, but at the time, they were then bought out by Advent, and, and I, I kind of saw the writing a little bit on the wall with that one. Orion's been good. I think where we're going is, is as I mentioned, we, we merged with COVID, so they just made a transition to Adapar, so we'll probably see a transition from Orion to Adapar. I think what, what you're trying to get, and what I don't think anyone has perfected, is a, a client portal that can also be used internally for trading and advisor, you know, day-to-day communication. So I think they're all striving to provide this silver bullet that is never going to be there. And I mean, you know, Reed Colley's launched this summit and we've looked at that and that looks interesting too. But ultimately, I think that the important thing is that you have, you control the data as, as the owner of the RIA and you have opportunities. Now there's costs obviously to do a transition, to do, you know, to do that. But ultimately that's what we have as an advantage, right? We, if you're an advisor at a warehouse, you have zero say in what you're going to provide to your clients. And they usually overpromise and underperform with what they're telling their, their advisors they're going to do. And, and so hopefully, you know, we're out there striving to find whatever's best in the industry uh, that we can provide to, to our clients and our advisors. You know, and I have to commend you on that because uh, by my count, you've been through three conversions of your portfolio management and you might be on the verge of four and you're still standing, your firm's <laughs> still in business um, and, and your clients are still with you. So that says a lot about your, you know, the, your firm's resiliency and your ability to get stuff done because those are not, not easy projects at all. And I also think it speaks to your commitment to try and give the best to your clients because a lot of people won't go through the pain of a conversion, even if they think there might be a better solution because it's so disruptive. I think what you have to acknowledge is that there's got to be a cost. You have to run dual platform for a while. If you're thinking about making a switch on April 1st and you're going to turn off the, the, the old one and put the new one on, you, you got to be insane. So, you know, you got to have a commitment to, you know, three to six months of that dual platform just to give your employees and your clients a time to adjust. That's wise, actually, right there. That's um, as as a friend of mine says. That's free jewelry. We just got to pick that up off the ground right there. Because I do think a lot of people are trying to make that perfect switch, right? The analogy I always use is there's two trains, you know, going across, and people are trying to make that jump perfectly at the you know at the time when bullet trains are passing. You can't do that. You gotta you gotta give yourself some room to maneuver. Yeah, and that's that's just you know the way we we've, we've always you know transitioned. We probably tried it the first time the wrong way and then and then re- quickly realized that you know you got to have some transition period. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit about hey what what the industry really needs is a, kind of a client portal that you know could be 
used operationally for trading, things like that. It makes me think of a question I love to ask, which is kind of where you think the future of the industry is going. So get out your crystal ball, Lyle. Tell us what you think the future of the RIA industry looks like. And it doesn't have to be technology focused. It can be, you know, really anything. But what's, you know, what's your prognostication of where this business is headed? I think what's clear is that clients are speaking with money movement and that they're embracing the fiduciary RIA model. I think that's clear. I think that as we talked about a little bit earlier, what's going to differentiate the firms is how much they can do internally to provide a one-stop solution for the client, but still embrace the fiduciary standards. So you know, as an example, and I, I believe, and this is why we, we did what we did with our, our sister firm, Covitz, is I think there's going to be some super regional firms that are going to establish themselves. You know, there's going to be some outliers to that, but I, I'm not sure that you're going to see a national that's going to have this personal touch that our clients, especially on the high net worth, ultra high net worth side, want. You know, one of the things that, that we've started down the path, we, we established the family office, so we're bill paying, we're bookkeeping for certain clients. I think tax advice is the next thing that clients are going to require us to do for them, not because they're looking to save a dollar, but because they want the convenience. Look, as you've seen it, I mean, people are moving remote, they're moving to warmer climates or wherever they want to move, and they still have an established base. And, and ultimately, it's, it's a lot harder for them to te- keep track of all the paperwork, the financial information. And I think our job is to make their lives easier while they're in retirement or while they're either accumulating their, their wealth or running their business. And so I think these added services, so the insurance services, we call it an insurance audit. We don't sell insurance, we advise on it, but they want someone to take a look at what they have and say, is this good or bad? Or you know, can I do better or do I even need it? And so we really take that approach where we audit their insurance, we don't sell them on it. You know, The family office, the, the tax prep is gonna be a big part of that. And then I think the core is, can you do some of the things from an investment perspective internally to cut some of those internal fees down? So, you know, we manage our own bonds and we don't charge an additional fee to the client. There's a a stock portfolio, core equity portfolio. Are you going to have real estate private funds to offer without adding on these layers of fees? Because I think as as you talked about this fee compression, you don't necessarily have to have fee compression, but you just have to continue to try to find ways to add value. And if I'm finding opportunities to keep my fees the same, but reduce the internal expenses of the client, they're going to know about it. And it's going to end up you know, showing up in the investment portfolio performance. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. So we are kind of coming to the end of the conversation. I want to pivot to a segment that we call the mile marker minute. Uh, So this is a lightning round question sort of format. Uh, The goal is to have all of the questions answered in less than a minute. I'm not going to hold you to it, but uh, but that's the idea here as we wrap up with a little bit of energy and a little bit of fun. So you ready to kick off the mile marker minute? I'll try it now. I got to answer all all the questions in under a minute. Yeah, and it's only like 150 questions, so you should be okay. Uh, No, a couple questions here. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, it's a it's a benchmark, not a not a rule. But all right, here we go. First question for you. My understanding is that your favorite candy is peanut M&Ms. Why are peanut M&Ms the best candy? Multi-layer. You get a lot of different tastes. And obviously, you go for the green ones first. (laughs) I like that. Go for green. Uh, Speaking of green, you love golf just like I do. 
Uh, if you had to choose between going to the Masters or the Ryder Cup, which one would you pick? Masters. I've never been, and, and Ryder Cup was tough to watch. Only a few groups a day. <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah, well, well put. What is the best book that you read in 2023 that you think everybody listening to this should pick up and read? Uh, Traction by Gino Wickman. EOS? Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys, did you implement EOS this year? Yeah, and I go back to it all the time. Yeah. We use Gino. We actually, he was our advisor. So we've been, we worked with him directly. No way. I mean, yeah. That's a cool, that's a cool note. Um, okay. And then my final mile marker minute question for you. Uh, Taylor Swift, is she good or bad for football? I think she's great. My daughter is, uh, is definitely into the Lions more than she would have been. She's, uh, you know, and they're just bringing out a new audience. Yeah. And uh, I think it's great. And as, as you know, in our business, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. And I think the NFL is, is, should be embracing it. She's great bringing a whole new audience to it. You nailed it. You absolutely killed it. I think that was almost right at a minute, even with me asking some, you know, sort of tangential questions. So Lyle, thanks so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think you dropped a lot of knowledge. You know, you brought brass tacks conversation and insight to this, which I think a lot of the people listening to this uh, will really benefit from. So thanks for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Absolutely. All right, everybody. That's been another episode of The Connected Advisor. Please make sure you follow or subscribe on whatever podcast platform you like, and we will see you on the next episode.